In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een Inshallah continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Asiratu Nabawiyah, the prophetic biography In the last few sessions we talked about the battle of the trench Ghazwatul uh, Khandaq or also known as Ghazwatul Ahzab The battle against the unified or allied army and then we also talked about some of the aftermath of the Battle of Khandaq, which was basically the incident or the situation of Banu Quraida, the Jewish tribe that had committed treason and violated the constitution of Medina and backed out in their uh, agreement with the Muslims, their pact with the Muslims. What I wanted to talk about today was continuing on with the aftermath of the Battle of Khandaq, basically the end of the fifth year of Hijrah, the end of the fifth year of the Prophet Wasallam's residence in the city of Medina. However, I wanted to, it's going to be a little mix of a few different incidents that we'll be talking about today. The first two incidents that I'll be discussing are very difficult um, situations to discuss just in order to be able to create context. And they can also be understood as part of the aftermath of the Battle of the Trench. And then inshallah, uh, I'll be continuing on with discussing the main thing that I'd like to discuss in today's uh, class, in today's session, today's uh, podcast, and that is the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ to Ummu Habiba, Ramla bin Tabi Sufyan, radiallahu ta'ala anha. So today's session will primarily be dedicated to the Prophet marriage to Ummu Habiba. However, I'm going to start off by mentioning just a couple of incidents that occurred and can be seen as an aftermath of the Battle of the Trench to appreciate the context of them. The first incident is known as the incident of Abu Rafi'ah. Now, Abu Rafi'ah, his name was Salam ibn Abil Huqayq. Salam ibn Abil Huqayq. And he was um, a man from uh, the Jewish tribes. He resided in the place of Khaybar. Now the Battle of Khaybar has not happened yet. However, uh, Ibn Ishaq mentions that Abu Rafi'ah fi man hazzab al-ahzaba ala Rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Abu Rafi'ah was also one of the main conspirators. He was one of the main uh, planners and instigators behind the Battle of the Trench. So in unifying all the different armies together to launch an attack against Medina and against the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims, Abu Rafi'ah was a very pivotal person in that situation. He was primarily behind it. So 
the reason why I mentioned that is it's important to understand the context because again, and I say this for the benefit of both Muslims and non-Muslims alike, but particularly Muslims, we oftentimes, you know, today in in with especially a lot of the Islamophobia, we find people going into Islamic history, taking incidents from Islamic history, taking them completely out of context and presenting them as scenarios of you know violent killings and assassinations and murdering people and so on and so forth. So you have to understand, there was an army of 10,000 people, allied army of multiple different people who marched on Medina, tried to burn it to the ground. The Muslims had to dig a trench and barely survived this and eventually were saved by the help and the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through a miracle, a wind being sent that dispersed the army. So in the aftermath of that, there were there were situations that needed to be handled and resolved. And Abu Rafi' was one of those people who was an instigator behind Al-Ahzab. And so based off of the facts that were available, what was expected was it is probably only a matter of time until he basically launches another plan or hatches another scheme to be able to take out the Muslims. So at this particular time, the, some of the Muslims came to the Prophet ﷺ, specifically some of the Ansar from the tribe of Khazraj. They came to the Prophet ﷺ, about five individuals, and they said that we are aware of the fact that Abu Rafir is a um, key individual that was involved in instigating and creating and conspiring and planning this entire situation. So we would like the permission to be able to go and deal with him, dispose of him. And so the Prophet ﷺ gave them permission. And so the narrations of Bukhari basically mentioned that they went um, to the place where Abu Rafi'a resided. Basically it was kind of like a fortress that he had. And Abdullah bin Atik, uh, عنه, one of the Ansari Sahaba, he went with a group of people and he was the leader of this little uh, group of individuals who were going on this mission. And... They waited until the evening time, and there are a few different narrations, but Bukhari's narration says that Abdullah bin Atik, he said that it'll be, it will, it'll be too noticeable if all of us basically enter in. So he told his companions, why don't you stay outside and keep a lookout. He basically, you know, kind of in the evening time when they were closing up the gates, he went ahead and went, snuck inside amongst the people, and he entered into the fortress. And what he did was, he basically made his way all the way to where Abu Rafir himself resided. And he resided all the way at the top of the fortress in a higher room that took a ladder to basically reach. Because again, all of these facts are very relevant because this was the conduct of someone who knew that he was basically out plan planning and plotting war against people. So he had fortified himself inside of his fortress and he used to stay up in a, almost like a balcony or a room up on top that you used to have to take a ladder all the way up to reach. Abdullah bin Atik enters into there and he says it was dark and there were a few other people sleeping in the room. So he says that I kind of called for Abu Rafi and when he said yes, so then he said I went and tried to attack him and, but I didn't think I was successful. So I then came back and said, Abu Rafi'a, what's going on? And he said, oh, somebody's trying to attack me. And he said that when I heard his voice and I was able to aim, you know, key in on him, where exactly was. And then he says that he went and basically killed him. And at that point in time, he says that I tried to now leave. I tried to run out before they could catch me. 
and he talks about how he ended up falling down the ladder and really badly injuring himself, his, his hand, his arm and his leg. And some narrations even mentioned that he had a broken leg. And he somehow made his way out and his companions um, who were waiting for him, they received him and he said, let's wait until we can make sure that we were successful in the mission. And when the morning time came, they heard some people making an announcement that Abu Rafi has died. And so he says that at that time we returned back to the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. And when he says, when I returned back to Medina, I was nursing this injury and I couldn't walk and I had a lot of pain. And so he says, the Prophet ﷺ said to me, Ubsut rijlak, stretch your leg out. And he says, I put my leg out. And the Prophet ﷺ made dua and he wiped with his hand over my leg. And it was as if my leg had never even been injured. The Prophet ﷺ was able to miraculously heal my leg. So this is... One of the incidents that basically occurred as a response and as dealing with some of the aftermath of the Battle of the Trench. There was similarly another incident or situation. The Battle of the Trench and the way things played out, in the eyes of the enemy at the very least, they saw that an enemy was able to march its way up to the gates of Medina and almost annihilate them. And then, you know, a lot of the enemy saw this as just the Muslims got lucky that you know they were able to dig a trench and then eventually these winds came and dispersed them and so on and so forth. So at this particular time, there was another individual by the name of Khalid bin Sufyan al-Hudali who was gathering an army um, to be able to launch an attack against the Medina, uh, against Medina and the Prophet and the Muslims. So this man Khalid bin Sufyan al-Hudali was building and amassing an army to attack the city of Medina. The Prophet ﷺ was informed of the plan that this person was making. So the Prophet ﷺ sent um, Abdullah bin Unais uh, a sahabi, a companion of the Prophet ﷺ. He sent him to basically go and try to resolve the situation and handle the situation. So at this particular time, Abdullah bin Unais uh, he says that I asked the Prophet ﷺ, can you give me some description of him? And he basically gave me a little bit of a description. And he says that when I went there, when I arrived there, um, there was a time for Asr prayer, so I prayed. And he says that, Umi bi was but I didn't want to get discovered. So I basically prayed, just kind of sitting down, just making gestures with my head. And that's basically when somebody's in a situation where they can't pray properly, that's what's allowed to do. So he says, I made my way to this man, Khalid bin Sufyan al-Hudali, and he asked me, who are you? And I said, I'm from, the, I'm from one of the tribes of the Arabs, and I've heard that you are gathering an army together to be able to launch an attack against Medina. And he said, yes, ajal, and uh, inna fi dhalik, that's exactly what we're doing here. So he said, do you mind if I just kind of come with you and I'd like some details and I maybe like to join y'all. So he says, for and I walked with him for a time until we were kind of away from everyone and I felt like I had the opportunity. And he says that at that time, I attacked him and I was able to kill him. And I came back to Medina and the Prophet wasallam, you know, he, he appreciated me. He said, Aflah um, al-wajhu, that, you know, may, may God bless you. And again, I want to explain some of the sentiment behind this because it's important for us to understand the context and the situation.
The Prophet وسلم, and we've talked about incidents like this before, what he was trying to avoid in this circumstance was an army coming to Medina, possibly dozens if not hundreds of people dying from that army, getting killed from that army, dozens if not hundreds of Muslims getting killed as well on the other side. So you have so much loss of life, right? And all the other chaos that occurs in the aftermath of war versus being able to dispose of one problematic individual who has decided to wage a war that nobody else is interested in. Right? So this was the strategy of the Prophet ﷺ. And again, somebody can point to this and try to make whatever accusations that can make. People who are intelligent, people who are interested in context, and people who are interested in intelligent, academic, sensible conversation will understand the significance of this. And those who are looking to slander, those who are looking to accuse, those who are looking to paint a particular picture, they have a presumption in place, then they will ignore all these details. And they'll say, oh no, look, he sends a man to go kill, to murder somebody, and then he congratulates him for murdering somebody. And so it requires a certain, aside from knowledge, and an intelligent, uh, sober conversation, like a very balanced and thoughtful discussion, along with that it requires sincerity. And it requires honesty and integrity to really be able to process um, these types of incidents. So nevertheless, he comes back and he says, Oh, Messenger of Allah, I carried out the task. And the Prophet said, Yes, you did. Very good. And then he says that the Prophet said, The Prophet he says that he gave me a staff, like a walking stick. And this was a walking stick the Prophet used to use. Right? So the Prophet ﷺ had a walking stick. He gave him his walking stick and he said, Keep this with you, O Abdullah. So he says, I took the walking stick with me and I didn't think anything of it. The Prophet ﷺ gives you something, you take it. So I took it and I just went. When I went out to the people, they said, Mahadil Asa. Because he, he didn't use a walking stick typically. So when they saw me with one, they said, What is this walking stick? And he said, The Prophet ﷺ gave it to me and he told me to keep it. So they said that You should ask the Prophet what is the significance of this. So I went back to the Prophet and said, O oh, Messenger of God, if I may, why did you give me this staff, this walking stick? And he said, This will be how I will recognize you on the day of judgment. I will spot you with this walking stick. And he took this to heart. And it said that he never went anywhere. He never physically separated from that walking stick. Hatta so much so mata That he says that even when he died, he commanded that that walking staff, that walking stick be buried with him. And so it was buried along with him, and this was a gift from him to the Prophet ﷺ. And he said, I will recognize you with this on the day of resurrection, on the day of judgment. Because, again, because of this individual's courage and bravery, potentially the lives of hundreds of people, both Muslims and non-Muslims. Right? The sanctity of life is what was important. The life of hundreds of human beings was spared due to the courage and the bravery and the trust that this individual placed within the Prophet ﷺ. Now, what I'd like to talk about here today, and I wanted to dedicate the majority of today's discussion to this particular incident or this event from the life of the Prophet 
I'll mention just a little historical uh, or an academic point about the history. Ibn Ishaq, Bayhaqi, uh, Ibn Kathir, and many of the other scholars of the seerah say that the Prophet ﷺ married Ummu Habiba in the end of the fifth year of Hijrah. Some, however, also do mention that the Prophet ﷺ married her in the sixth year of Hijrah. And one of the ways that that's reconciled was that the proposal was sent in the fifth year, but by the time that she, and, and the marriage was conducted, the nikah, the contract, the ceremony, if you will, was conducted at the end of the fifth year, but then she actually arrived because it was a long journey from Habasha, from East Africa, and I'll explain why she's in East Africa. The journey from there to Medina, by the time she reached, it was the sixth year. So that's why there seems to be a little discrepancy in the reporting of the timeline of the Prophet marriage to Umu Habiba. So I talked about Umu Habiba radiallahu ta'ala anha very early on um, in our series on the life of the Prophet one of the earlier podcasts when I talked about the migration to Habasha, the migration to East Africa, Abyssinia. I talked about it there. So just to refresh our memory, um, Umu Habiba, her name is Ramla. Bint Abu Sufyan. This is Ramla. This is the daughter of Abu Sufyan. The Abu Sufyan. The one who has been a staunch opponent of the Prophet ﷺ and Islam and the Muslims. And the one who had launched an attack against the Muslims on numerous occasions. And he was in fact at the head of the allied armies that had come at the Battle of the Trench. So Ramla, this, this uh, woman, radiallahu ta'ala anha, this Muslim woman, she was married to a man by the name of Abdullah bin Jahash, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Uh, or initially he was Muslim. They, had both, they were both among some of the early converts to Islam. They were among some of the early uh, people who had accepted Islam in Mecca and who were living in fear and you know, trying to keep their faith and their Islam secret and hidden due to the persecution in Mecca. When the opportunity presented itself to leave Mecca, escape persecution and be able to go and live in asylum, in refuge, safely in East Africa, they were amongst the people who were sent on this particular journey and they went there and they took up residence there. While they were there, she became pregnant and she ended up having a daughter by the name of Habiba. Hence, she is called Ummu Habiba, the mother of Habiba. Radiallahu ta'ala anhuma. Very tragically and unfortunately, her husband, Ubaidullah bin Jahash, there are some reports that mention that he left Islam and converted to Christianity. And some narrations even mention that he ended up uh, becoming, you know, started drinking and basically became a drunkard. So there are a few narrations of this sort that basically say that some way, somehow, you know, very tragically and unfortunately due to either the pressure, the circumstances, whatever the case must have been, he kind of lost his way while they were out there in East Africa. And he ended up dying in this situation. So now, this young woman, Umu Habiba, young mother with a baby, with a child, she's a single mother, she's a widow, she's out there in East Africa, there's a community there. But she's also the daughter of Abu Sufyan, the leader of Quraysh, the leader of Mecca. So she's nobility of Mecca. And now she's by herself, a single mother, she's out there. The Prophet ﷺ, when he heard this, the Prophet ﷺ became concerned about her situation. And the Prophet ﷺ said that not only is this, you know, obviously someone we have to take care of as a community, but also being the daughter of the leader of her people, that, you know, she deserves that type of dignity and honor, and she sacrificed a lot. <clears throat> so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Mumtahina, Ibn Abbas 
radiallahu ta'ala anhum, he says this ayah was about the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ to Ummu Habiba, where <clears throat> the Prophet, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says, Asallahu an yaj'ala baynakum wa bayna alladheena aadaytum minhum mawaddatan. That very soon, God will create, Allah will make between you and the people who have declared animosity against you, Allah will make, will create between you love or family relations. Right? And Abdullah bin Abbas says, this was basically addressing the Prophet ﷺ marrying Ummu Habiba radiallahu ta'ala anha. So the Prophet ﷺ, at this particular time, he sent a proposal to Ummu Habiba radiallahu ta'ala anha for marriage. And the narration mentions in detail, so at this time I need to remind, our, remind all of us of another individual that plays a very interesting role in this, um, you know, this, this marriage, and that is the king of Abyssinia, An-Najashi, whose name was Ashaba. An-Najashi is more of the title, king. Right? It just, it's the title that's given to the king. His name was Ashama. He's the same one who had welcomed the Muslims, given refuge to the Muslims, and also had become Muslim, but had kept his Islam hidden. Obviously due to, because of his situation and who he was in the community. So, Ashama, the Prophet ﷺ sent word to him. And some narrations mentioned that even Ashama was the one who sent word to the Prophet ﷺ suggesting this. In either scenario, the Prophet ﷺ officially sent Amr bin Umayyah al-Damri, who was a companion of the Prophet ﷺ. He sent him to Najashi, the king, and he said, please carry my proposal there for Ummu Habiba. So Ummu Habiba radiallahu ta'ala anha says, ma sha'artu wa ana bi ard al-habshati, that I had no idea that all of this was going on. I was residing in Habsha at that particular time, when one of the messengers of the king of Abyssinia, Ashama, it was a woman, a young, um, a, a, a woman who used to work in the home, and it specifically mentions that she used to prepare the clothing and um, some of the garments of the king of Abyssinia. That she came, her name was Abraha, and she came to visit Ummu Habiba. She asked for permission and she entered in and she said that the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, she brought a, a letter from the king of Abyssinia, and the letter said, that the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad has sent a message to me that I should basically represent him and marry you to him. So, congratulations. Do you accept the proposal? And she said, of course I do. So she said that I would like, for, I would like to have somebody to represent me as well. And she sent for one of the Muslims that was a part of their small community there, whose name is Khalid bin Sa'id ibn al-As, who was related to her from her father's side. Khalid bin Sa'id bin Al-As. So, and she was so ecstatic at the news of this proposal from the Prophet ﷺ that she says that I was wearing some jewelry, some bangles and some rings at that time. And I removed them immediately and gave them to this servant, this woman that used to work for the king. I gave it to her as a gift for congratulating me. And she says that I ended up going with my representative Khalid bin Sa'id bin Al-As 
to the court of the king. And over there, the, court, the king had prepared basically, you know, an entire ceremony for the marriage. He had, he had brought all the Muslims, Ja'far bin Abi Talib, the cousin of the Prophet and the small community of Muslims, they had all been brought. And he conducted the marriage. And it specifically mentions that he said, Alhamdulillahi al-Malik al-Qudus al-Salam al-Mu'min al-Muhaymin al-Aziz al-Jabbar. He started by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and mentioning some of the really beautiful names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the ultimate praise is for Allah who is the, the king. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pure and he is a grantor of peace and he is a grantor of safety and he is the protector and he is the dominant and the powerful. I bear testimony that there is no one worthy of worship except for Allah and that Muhammad is the slave and messenger of God. And Muhammad is the messenger that Isa alayhi salam, the Prophet Jesus, had prophesied, had told us about. And he said, Amma ba'd, as for what follows, فَإِنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم كَتَبَ إِلَيَّ The Messenger of God صلى الله عليه وسلم has written to me, meaning he has sent a message to me and requested me, أَنْ أُزَوِّجَهُ أُمُّ حَبِيبًا بِنْتَ بِسُفْيَانِ That I should conduct the marriage between him and the daughter of Abu Sufyan, Ummu Habiba. So, فَأَجَبْتُ إِلَى مَا دَعَى إِلَيْهِ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم I answer, the request of the Messenger of God dinar, And I present as 400 dinar, 400 gold coins, as a mahar, as a marriage gift, from on behalf of the Prophet to Ummu Habiba. And some narrations mention that this marriage gift, that it was given as a gift from An-Najashi on behalf of the Prophet And some mention that the Prophet had actually sent the mahar himself, by his, by, with, in the hands of Abdullah bin Umayyah Damri, the messenger who had come from the Prophet Then Khalid bin Sa'id, the, the relative, the, the, the cousin that uh, Umm Habiba had appointed to represent her in the marriage ceremony, he said, Alhamdulillahi ahmaduhu wa astaghfiruhu. I praise Allah and I ask for his forgiveness. Wa ashadu la ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluhu. Again, he testified that I believe that there is no one worthy of worship except for Allah and that Muhammad is a slave and the messenger of Allah. Arsalahu bil huda wa deen al haqq li yudhirahu ala deeni kullihi wa lawkariha al mushirikun. That Allah sent the messenger of Allah sallallahu with guidance and the true religion so that it may become apparent over all other religions, even if the idolaters, the polytheists, the idol worshippers don't dislike this fact. And then he said, Amma ba'ad, as for what follows, فَقَدْ أَجَبْتُ إِلَى مَا دَعَى إِلَيْهِ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ I answer, I also answer and respond to the call and the request of the Messenger Sufyan. And with her consent and approval and permission, I also marry Ummu Habiba, my family member, to the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad And then he said, May God bless the Messenger of Allah. And then at that time, um, and Najashi said, now everyone sit down, ijlisu. And he said something very interesting, and we know this from the sunnah of our Prophet ﷺ. He said, فَإِنَّ مِن سُنَّةِ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ إِذَا تَزَوَّجُوا أَنْ يُؤْكَلَ تَعَامُنَ عَلَى التَّزْوِيجِ It is from the sunnah of the Prophets that when marriage, when a marriage happens, when a marriage is conducted, that food is served to your guests. 
We know this as the, the wedding feast, the walima. So he basically fed all the guests at that time. And then everybody was served. And at that particular time, he also appointed um, someone to... Uh, lead to guide he, he created a whole prepared a whole caravan and appointed somebody to escort Ummu Habiba radiallahu ta'ala anha to the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the city of Medina and that is how Ummu Habiba radiallahu ta'ala anha became one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and also one of the mothers of the believers radiallahu ta'ala anhunna ajma'in now, in the Prophet Sallallahu marriage to Umu Habiba radiallahu ta'ala anha, I wanted to marry, mention a few things in light of this as a few lessons from this that we learned, some very valuable lessons that we can learn from this. First and foremost, we obviously understand that the Prophet ﷺ, look at the type of nobility, the honor, the dignity that he bestows upon Umu Habiba. And part of the Prophet ﷺ consideration of that fact was in spite of him being my enemy, in spite of him being an enemy, Abu Sufyan is still a leader of his people. And it is important to honor his daughter and take care of his family members who have come to us. That's a very important consideration on the part of the Prophet and it's a type of integrity that would eventually win the heart of Abu Sufyan and bring him to Islam. Because he would become Muslim later. Number one. Number two, we see... That the Prophet of Allah وسلم, and I want to mention this and I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying. The Prophet وسلم, you know, it's not like the Prophet married Umu Habiba radiallahu ta'ala anha, she's a mother of the believers, she's like our mother. That it's not like the Prophet married her, God forbid, right, out of pity or something of that nature. That's absolutely a horrendous thought. But the Prophet ﷺ married her because of her qualities and her faith, her belief, her character, her conviction, her piety, her nobility, her dignity. That's why the Prophet ﷺ married her. But what I want to highlight in light of that is, this is a woman, like we've talked about some of the other mothers of the believers, this is a woman who was married and she suffered through, first of all, she went through a lot of difficulty and adversity. Right? She suffered through a very tragic situation domestically with her husband falling into a very tragic situation and then dying and has a small child. So when you marry a woman with a small child, you are now responsible for that baby and raising of that child as well. And I'm talking very honestly and very openly and sincerely about the culture we have a lot of times in our society, in our communities today. Where well, May Allah forgive me for even verbalizing this, but a lot of times people will look at individuals in that situation as, you know, damaged goods, or too much trouble, or problematic, or difficult situations, challenging situations, right? Very, very unfortunate. And of course, we completely, you know, are in total disagreement with that type of mentality and attitude. But what we see is the Prophet ﷺ didn't necessarily marry her because of that. But the fact is that that did not factor into the decision of the Prophet ﷺ. It factors into the decision logistically that yes, I will have to take care of her child along with her. But that did not impede the decision and the consideration of Muhammad ﷺ in marrying her. He looked at this woman in terms of her, like I said before, her faith, her piety, her dignity, her nobility, her character, her integrity. 
And that was what he took into consideration. And so it's the Prophet ﷺ, you know, when we say that he is Uswatun Hasana, he's the ultimate role model, the Sunnah of the Prophet, ﷺ, the Sunnah of the Prophet. ﷺ. And we, we 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 say these things, but unfortunately, after a certain point in time, it becomes very empty rhetoric. They become slogans. Right? It becomes cliche. We just say it for the sake of saying it. But at what point in time does it actually become reality? And do we actually live, or do we only consider the sunnah when it serves my own personal purpose, or my own liking? There's an ayah in the Qur'an that is very, very stern. And I want to preface this by saying that I don't, you know, I'll be very honest that the ayah is basically talking about the Ahlul Kitab and people who don't believe in Islam, where they would kind of pick and choose what they liked from Islam and what they didn't like from Islam. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reprimanded them in the Qur'an by saying, That do you believe in some of the book and you disbelieve in some of the book? You take some of the book and you leave some of the book? You take what you like and you leave what you don't like? Yes, that's a very severe reprimand and it was aimed at non-Muslims. Right? People who didn't believe. But Abdullah bin Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhum, the great companion of the Prophet who the Prophet made dua for to give him an understanding of the Qur'an, and he is one of our primary teachers when it comes to understanding the Qur'an. He said that even when verses in the Qur'an are explicitly talking about non-Muslims, Muslims should not turn a deaf ear towards it. Like Muslims should not be heedless of it. Muslims should not just leave it aside as if it doesn't apply to them. Because while it might have been said directly to the non-Muslims, there are still lessons in it for the Muslims because there is still that type of behavior that can start to manifest. That is, in, so, in some ways, bears a resemblance or has certain, you know, um, certain elements of that problematic nature that the Qur'an talks about. And we have to consider that same thing here. That when we look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ, I take from the life of the Prophet ﷺ what I like, what I'm okay with, what works for me, and what does not work for me, or what does not, you know, suit my exact liking, then I pretend it doesn't even exist, or I try to work my way around it, that that's not appropriate. And it might not be, you know, different people, different situations, and Allah has written something different and destined something different for everyone. But I'm talking more about a communal attitude. A communal attitude. Right? The, the, just our mentality as a community. And our culture as a community. That it has to start to fall in line with the Qur'an, with the Book of Allah, and the Sunnah of the Prophet And the way the Prophet honors her, and welcomes her, and the way this king honors her and dignifies her and welcomes her and bestows such nobility upon her. Right? We have to take that into consideration. That treating people with dignity and realizing that some of what, unfortunately, again, very tragically and unfortunately, some people might call baggage, a lot of times is exactly the honor of people. And what gives them a lot of the remarkable qualities that they do have. And lastly and finally, I'll mention just one thing about Umm Habiba radiallahu ta'ala anha. This is a woman who, against all odds, her father is not Muslim, in fact is one of the biggest staunchest opponents to Islam. He opposes Islam so vehemently. She believes because she recognizes the truth. 
And she not only believes, she sticks to her iman. And then for the sake of her iman, she leaves her home and she leaves everything behind. And even over there, she suffers through such tragedy and difficulty in the situation with her husband. And finds herself with a child, widowed, in a foreign land. But think about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُضِيعُ أَجْرَ الْمُحْسِنِينَ Allah never wastes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never ignores, never neglects, never wastes the reward of those who strive for excellence, who live for a higher purpose in life, who live to realize the beauty of faith within their lives. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never lets them go to waste. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never abandons them. And look at what she's granted as an outcome and a result of this. She not only marries the Prophet ﷺ, but goes down into the volumes of history as one of the mothers of the believers, radiallahu ta'ala anhunna. And when we remember her today, we recall her and we remember her and we talk about her as our mother, Umu Habiba radiallahu ta'ala anha. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with her. So inshallah I'll go ahead and stop here with this Today was a little bit of a shorter session But inshallah we'll stop here And then going forward we'll discuss some of the Concluding events of the fifth year of Hijrah And then inshallah we will move forward With the uh, sixth year of Hijrah And some major events that unfolded within the sixth year May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability To practice everything that was said and heard Subhanallah bihamdihi Subhanakallah bihamdik Nashad wa la ilaha illa anta Nasaghfirka wa natubu ilayk